good to be with you. Happy Thanksgiving weekend um, to those of you who are able to be here with us in person, as well as those who are worshiping with us online through the live stream. We're grateful uh, to be in relationship with all of you and able to study the scriptures together today. So turn with me to John chapter 17. We've been in John for the last, oh, I don't know, what, nine months? And we're in John 17, the high priestly prayer. And over the last three weeks, we've looked at Jesus as he prayed for himself and then as he prayed for believers. And today, as we look at his prayers, he prays for non-believers. And for each of us, we would all acknowledge that each of us are here today because someone brought us to Jesus. Right? You're here today because someone brought you to Jesus. Whether maybe a few of you, that would be that you were sitting at home and you were watching a preacher or a televangelist or someone on TV. Um, but for most of you, it was a parent or a trusted uh, friend or a youth pastor um, or your pastor or someone that you trusted who brought you to Jesus. And probably more than anything, they told you of their unique story of how Jesus had changed their life, of how they realized that they were filled with sin and that they were in need of a Savior. And Jesus changed them as they surrendered their heart and their life to Him. Today, as we look at John 17, the high priestly prayer, we're just moments away from Jesus being arrested and literally slaughtered for the sins of the world, for your sins and for mine. And in that moment, just before this happens, Jesus does something spectacular. What would you do if you were the God of the universe and it was the last moments of your life as you had lived a sinless life, and now you are preparing in those last moments, what would you pray? And what would you say? Jesus prays something spectacular. He prays for all future believers. And in his prayer, he gives us some context for how the gospel effectively goes forth and how hearts and lives are changed for all of eternity. And I think we would all agree that there's nothing more significant in all of life, even as beautiful as a wedding day is or uh, as much fun and celebration as Christmas or Thanksgiving happens to be, there is nothing more beautiful than when a son or daughter or friend comes to know Jesus and trust in Jesus. Because at that moment, everything changes. And I think most of you will actually be shocked, or at least a little surprised, to find out that, that the key to people coming to know Jesus isn't actually the church committing to do more evangelism. A lack of evangelism is not the problem in the world coming to know Jesus. It's not even that the church needs a better marketing strategy. Or, um, or maybe just a little more legalism. You know, that always gets people uh, a little more shame and maybe they'll share the gospel more. It's none of those things. In fact, 
the big idea today is this. Got it on a slide for you. The key to non-believers knowing Jesus is Christians who are unified in the gospel. That's what Jesus prays for. The key to non-believers knowing Jesus is Christians who are unified in the gospel. And, and just before we jump in the scriptures, let me say this. Some of us get confused about what unity looks like. In the last few months, some of the church has thought that unity meant that we all vote the same way. That's not unity. That's called uniformity. And uniformity doesn't mean that we have unity. Uniformity means that we just all look alike. And that can be good or it can be bad. It can be good if you work somewhere and you wear the same uniform. But uniformity could mean that you're in prison. And so you have a prison uniform on. Uniformity could also mean that you're part of a cult. And so you all wear the same thing, right? And so uniformity isn't always a good thing. It just means you look alike. But it doesn't, uniformity doesn't bring unity. Unity comes when people of all kinds of different backgrounds, and this is what Jesus is going to pray for today, we're going to look at. When people of all types of different backgrounds and skin color and different ages and different financial backgrounds and different interests all come together around Jesus and they choose to invest their lives, not to waste their lives. So they live for the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus and the good of others. And they see that everything they are and everything they own is because of Jesus. And so they leverage all of this for his kingdom. Because there's no one more valuable to them than Jesus. That's what Jesus is praying for. And so let's look at his high priestly prayer as we finish it today. And we'll begin in verse 20 and we'll see... That Jesus teaches us that unity causes others to believe. Unity causes others to believe. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus prays a lot in the high priestly prayer. And some of it seems to be repetitive at times. And I think that oftentimes we see Jesus praying the same thing over and over again because it's such deep and meaningful truths that it takes us a while. We need to hear them over and over again in order to understand them. And so I want to look at this a little bit slowly today, but I just have two points for you. The first is this. Unity causes others to believe. It's unity. Not better evangelism. It's not better marketing. It's not more legalism and, and shaming people to share more often about Jesus. It's unity. And look at verse 20. Jesus, he shifts from praying for himself and then praying for the 11 disciples to now praying for you and for me. Like, just stop and consider that for just a minute. Can you believe that Jesus prayed for you while he was here on earth? Just hours before he would submit 
to the most humble act in all of history, being raised upon a cross for your sins and mine, and just moments before that, Jesus prayed for you. Look at verse 20. Jesus prays for the eleven and for those who, look at the emphasis, who will believe in me through their word. Do you understand Jesus' confidence in the Father's plan that he had given him? Jesus had walked in obedience to all that God had prepared for him to do. And if we had been in Jesus' Jesus' shoes, we would have put together a great marketing plan. We would have had the best band in all the world. Like they would have traveled around on a ship on the Sea of Galilee. We would have done concerts all over the place. We would have done like this great, you know, Jesus kind of tour where, where people came, you know, and hung out in big festivals for Jesus. Jesus didn't do any of that. People would try to create festivals for Jesus, and he would literally get on the boat and go to the other side, and they would chase him. Jesus' strategy was to pull in to 12 disciples, one who would turn away from him, and to walk closely with them, and even closer with just three And he was confident that if he spent his time investing in these men, that the Father's plan would be revealed to all the world. And look what he said at verse 20. He said, for those who will believe in me through their word. See, Jesus was confident that his message would continue through the word of his followers. Do you live with the daily expectation that people will Come to know Jesus because of His Spirit in you? As you share the gospel? Like, do you live with that daily expectation? And when I say with the daily expectation, I don't mean that that necessarily like the expectation that people are going to ask you, hey, just tell me about Jesus every day of your life. You know? Um, But do you live with the expectation that it's going to snow in Memphis? I mean, it's why kids turn their pajamas inside out and sleep, right? It's why they do all the crazy things that teachers tell them to do uh, because the expectation is that it doesn't, doesn't snow in Memphis much, but we hope and we expect it will snow sometime. And in the same way, do you live with the expectation that over the course of your life, Jesus will use His Spirit in you as you share the gospel and as you live in unity with other believers in order to transform the lives of those who are around you? Does your everyday life reflect the type of person that's been so transformed by the gospel of Jesus that people can't help but see that something is is different and unique about you in the way that you serve, in the way that you love others, in the way that you speak of Jesus and honor your boss and treat your spouse? And, And I don't mean necessarily every day, but I just kind of look back over the course of my life and I think about a couple of stories. I think about the couple that came up to me, this was between 15 and 20 years ago, and they said, thank you so much for inviting us here. And I was serving at one of the first churches that I served at outside of seminary, and they said, being here has made such a difference in our life in a time 
where we really needed to be, and they, they just kind of went on about how meaningful it was to be a part of the church family, what God had done for them. And I was embarrassed. And I said, I'm sorry, excuse me, I meet a lot of people, remind me how we met. They said, oh, you met us at Starbucks. You came up and, and gave us an invitation. You gave us a little business card and invited us to come to this church. And we just really felt like God was speaking to us through your invitation. And we came as a result. I didn't even remember them. Or I think about a more, a closer example to today of like... Um, my friend Ellis, and I don't think Ellis will mind me sharing this, but my meeting Ellis really had nothing to do with me or him. We were just sitting in a coffee shop. It really had everything to do with God and this other strange guy that was sitting there. The strange guy really didn't look like he belonged in Otherlands. And he had this huge laptop with, a, with like a bumper sticker going across it. And it either said, ask me about God or ask me about Jesus or something like that. And Ellis struck up a conversation with him. And I'm sitting over in the little sectional of furniture there. I'm sitting over on the couch minding my own business, reading my Bible, studying for upcoming sermon. And the man talks to Ellis for a little while and then says, I think he would be able to answer your questions better than me or something like that. And I just remember being pulled into this conversation. And the man got up and eventually left. And Ellis and I continued to talk. And God continues to work in Ellis' life. I called Ellis this last week, or I was texting with him, and he said, Hey, great timing, taking you up on your challenge for the three prayers a day, and my noon alarm just went off. God continues to use our lives as we walk in unity with Him. I think about someone like uh, our friend Takesha. And Takesha had an old friend from college, uh, Jeremy Mefford. And Jeremy said, hey, my mom and dad have started going to this little church plant in Memphis. You ought to check it out. I know you're looking for a church home. And years ago, Takesha came and then she invited her friend, Juan, who became her boyfriend, Juan, who became her husband, Juan. And then we baptized Juan. And now Ben was telling me this last week that Juan's leading one of their missional community studies coming up soon. God will use you. He will use His Spirit inside of you. He can't help but do it, is what we're going to discover in this text today. But do we live with this type of expectation that Jesus will use our witness through our words to impact the lives of people around us who are looking for direction? People who are looking for hope. People who are looking for peace and they cannot find it. And listen, they will not find it on their own in this world apart from God and the church. Do you have the expectation that God's plan is to use you? And I would just go as far as to ask, if so, what's your strategy? And, and I'm, I'm not going to go off the deep end here in trying to guilt you and to come up with some, something. But I have friends who regularly share business cards. So when we go out to restaurants, they'll leave a business card that has scripture on it, their name on it, telephone number on it. And I've known other friends who have come to know Jesus. I, I know one friend, I've already done his funeral. And, and he kind of came to know Jesus because somebody left a gospel track in a bathroom. And he was desperate 
He's a drug addict. And he found that gospel track. And he came to know Jesus as he read it. What's your strategy? Because here's the deal. It's really not that hard. There's not one way to do it that fits all. Some people like to like share you know, printed material. There's others who just like to build friends. That, that's kind of what I do. I just make friends with people. I make friends with everybody. We should like everybody, right? We should hang out with everybody. And you know what I have found over time? That when I build a friendship and when I have the opportunity to say, hey, could I share with you about the person who's changed my life the most? His name is Jesus. Whether friends are agnostic or atheist, a lot of times I think we have this mentality that if we share our story of how Jesus has impacted us, that somehow we're going to like destroy that friendship. Now, if you stand on Beale Street with a megaphone and yell at people, you might destroy a friendship before it ever starts. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do that. Some people feel called to that. If Jesus calls them to it, they should. And Jesus can use that. But do you know what I have found over time is that as I share my story with people who are atheist or agnostic or don't believe that there's even a God, the majority of them say, wow, that sounds like a really precious faith. That sounds like something, I've even had friends who have said, that sounds like something I wish I had. We have come to believe in this lie that sharing about Jesus will offend people and that it'll destroy a relationship. And yes, sharing about Jesus at times that does bring division. But Jesus says that people will come to know Him as we share about the unity that we experience with Him. In verse 21, Jesus prays for unity. The same type of unity that he has experienced in the Godhead for all of time. He prays for us. The same kind of humility in the way that he lives in obedience to the Father. And then the way in which the Spirit glorifies the Son. And then the way in which Jesus glorifies the Father. He prays for that same kind of humility. Servant-heartedness within the church within his body, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He prays that this will result in being so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is saying that our unity as a people will result in people believing in him. Now that's pretty amazing to stop and think. Because I think unity... Um, for the most part, we go, oh yeah, we need to be unified. We don't need to gossip. We need to treat others as we would want to be treated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But think for a minute. What's it like when people are not experiencing unity? That's probably one of the easiest ways for us to identify how powerful unity really is. What's it like when people aren't experiencing unity? Like some of you feel that at your family gatherings in the past. That's why some of you were thankful this year uh, at Thanksgiving not to have to get together with extended family post-election because you knew some conversations that were going to come up and they were not going to be described as unified. Am I correct? Yeah. When you think about 
places where you don't experience unity, one of the places that's one of the saddest places of disunity that I can think of is juvenile court. If you've ever been down there, I mean, it is like families crying and kids crying and social workers. It's got to be one of the most depressing places I've ever seen. Disunity. When you think about... um, Anything that produces a lot of drama in your life, whether that's, whether that's on a team or whether that's at work, like disunity, right? But then think about how does it make you feel when all of this disunity is going on? It makes you feel all the feels, doesn't it? Angry and hurt and sad and fear. All at the same time. Often includes tears, sometimes even threats. And you're just gonna get, you want to go somewhere without all the drama, somewhere where unity is experienced. Because with unity, the results of unity are peace and hope and rest and joy and gratitude and thankfulness and gladness. And for crying out loud, belonging. It's why people are willing to pay a lot of money when they go to college to be a part of a fraternity or a sorority. Because there's a sense of belonging, even if it's just behind some some Greek letters, you have been accepted. And there is a sense of unity. Unity is powerful. I mean, there's something beautiful about unity. You see it it at St. Jude Hospital. This will be the first year in a lot of years that that I haven't run, that, that I will not next weekend, next Saturday, run the half or the full marathon. And... There's something so unifying and so beautiful about people coming together to train and sacrifice and raise money and and just thousands of people at a pasta dinner. Why? All to get behind St. Jude. People who uh, want to experience that unity. Why are they doing that? They're happily sacrificing and they're raising money to come around families. Families who have received a death sentence because of cancer. And they're coming around those families so that they can help to offer life. It's beautiful. Now let me ask the question. How much more beautiful is the church? If life is eternal and our souls will live forever to be with God or apart from God. Then how much more important is it that we run the race for those who have received a death sentence? Which the Bible says is all of mankind. Beginning with our spiritual parents, Adam and Eve. You and I, we're no different. We need a rescuer from our sin. And that's why it's so important that we're unified in Jesus. Because the contrast is also true. Lack of unity undermines our witness to the world. You hear about uh, particular churches where there's sexual scandal or fighting or selfish ambition. James chapter 3 says that selfish ambition is actually demonic because we are pursuing a world that's all about ourselves and our own glory rather than the kingdom of God and His kingdom here on earth. You're either part of the natural or you're part of the spiritual. You're either unifying or you're bringing disunity. And we can choose to invest our lives and bring unity or not. Secondly, Jesus teaches us, and lastly, that God's love becomes our love. This is pretty amazing. 
He says that God's love actually becomes our love. Look at verses 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me. Because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the, that, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Look at verse 24. Often we think of Jesus merely as a man. Think of him as the God-man, living and dying and rising from the dead. But we limit Jesus in this way. But Jesus reigns today in bodily form, seated at the right hand of the Father in glorious splendor, is what the Scriptures tell us. And here Jesus prays, and He prays, He says, I desire that they also, those whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Jesus is saying that He wants His church to get a bigger picture of who He is than the little limited gospel that we often see. And oftentimes we merely say Jesus just lived, He died, He rose again. No, Jesus is glorious. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus 700 years before he would even come here on earth. And in Isaiah 6, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but listen to the way that Isaiah describes. Isaiah gives us this hint of Jesus' glory as Isaiah describes. He sees the Lord Jesus in a vision, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And he's so spectacular that Isaiah says, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Do you understand what Isaiah is saying there? When he says that the train of his robe fills the temple. The temple was one of the largest complexes of this time. As if to say, Jesus' splendor cannot be held in man's architecture. He is saying that the hem of Jesus' robe fills the temple. It fills the thing that Jews and people from all over the world would walk in and they would say, look at this temple. Look at all the gold. Look at the massive stones. They would say, it's glorious. And Isaiah is saying that just the hem of his robe fills the temple. That's the glory of Jesus. That's who he is. Jesus' glory is too great for the world to hold. We merely see hints of his glory in the beauty and the splendor of nature and all the wonder of creation. We've enjoyed fall. Some of you love spring. Others love fall. We see these hints of his glory in a sunrise and a sunset. We see hints of his power in the wind and the rain and the lightning. We see the purity of Jesus in the snow and the vastness of who he is as we look at outer space. But Jesus' glory cannot be contained in our world and it cannot be comprehended by our minds. But we will experience His glory fully one day. Because John, who wrote this gospel, goes on to write in chapter 21 in the book of Revelation as he describes what life with Jesus will be like. Listen to this. One day he says, And I saw no temple 
in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That's the glory of Jesus. That's the glory of the one who came on our behalf. Who came and lived obediently to the Father. Look at how he ends in verses 25 and 26. Jesus ends by declaring that he will continue making God known to us. He will continue making God known to us. The gospel is a story that declares a moment in time in which Jesus lived as a perfect man. He suffered for our sins and then rose again victoriously. But listen to me, church. The gospel does not stop there. The gospel has continual effects upon the world. And listen, I grew up I grew up in a small church and I grew up kind of with this, often with this understanding that the gospel is that Jesus did his part. Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again. Jesus did his part. And now it's up to you to do your part. So Jesus is just kind of sitting in heaven. He's kind of like an old man in a rocking chair on the front porch twiddling his thumbs, just kind of waiting for the church. Uh, just kind of waiting for, like it's all up to us. And like he's waiting for the church to go to the nations. And he's waiting for the church to go and, and to declare his glory. And he's waiting on us as if it were all up to us. And the passage of scripture that we're looking at today tells us that Jesus is declaring his gospel and he is telling us that the good news has ripple effects. God's glory continues to be revealed in and through our lives as we love others. But Jesus says it's not our love that's being made complete. Goodness, no. I run out of my love really quick. And I do it oftentimes. And you guys probably get tired of our prayer of confession, or our time of confession. You know, on Sunday mornings, you're probably like, why can't we just sing three rocking songs and then have a sermon that's got a lot of application to it that tells us how to fix our lives? Because that's what, that's, what, you know, that's what good church is like. It's not. We get to the end of ourselves really quickly. And we stop in the moment of praising God and declaring the gospel every Sunday morning. And we stop and we remember that we need redemption and that we confess that we get to the end of our love very quickly. That we need to confess that we need God's love. I need God's love. But Jesus says it's not our love that's being made complete. It's God's love in us that enables us to love in a way that is supernatural. God's love becomes our love and the world cannot escape the glory of the Lord that He has revealed to us and put in us. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying the glory of God has been revealed to Him that God put His glory in Him 
that the God-man has now put his glory in us because his spirit is in us. And so when we love others with the supernatural love of Jesus, they don't see us, they see Jesus. And God's glory is revealed. That's why we share the gospel. The application today, the Great Commission isn't our job to get done. It's Jesus and God's promise to fulfill in and through us. We live as characters in God's story of redemption. We also live as proclaimers of that story, of God's story. So over these next few weeks, as you have time, as you think about Advent, and as you prepare your hearts, we don't celebrate Advent, we celebrate Christmas. We keep Advent and we wait during this time as we remember the humility of Jesus. His coming for us. The sinfulness of the world. Our need for a rescuer. It brings us to a point of humility. I wonder if you don't have an Advent devotion. I, I would just I try to buy a new one each year. This one has about two pages each day to read. So it's not that much to add on. Maybe, maybe four pages each day to add on. It's by David Mathis. <clears throat> it's called The Christmas We Didn't Expect. I don't quite know why he titled it that, but that seemed like it was fitting for 2020, so I bought it. I would encourage it to you because I know David Mathis and he's a great author. Daily Devotions for Advent. You could download it today on Kindle and you'll have it by December 1st if you want to read something. And uh, I'll have this up here if you, want to, if you want to come and check it out. During these time of Advent and of waiting, may we see God's glory revealed in and through our lives as we keep Advent and reflect on the humility, the suffering, and the joy that Jesus brings to us. The glory He brings to us. The glory He promises He will reveal through us. As we are unified in the gospel. And unified in His love. I'm going to invite the band to come on up as I pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your prayers. God, thank you that you showed us how to pray for ourselves how to pray for other friends, and God, even how to pray for those who don't yet know you. God, I pray as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 4 that you would help each of us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. God, that you would help us to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God, thank you for those moments where we need Jesus and when we realize that we aren't walking in love. Thank you that we can ask for your forgiveness. Thank you that we can confess our sin. God, thank you that we can find peace and hope and joy in Jesus one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. It's in his name that we pray, that we live, that we sing and declare his glory. In 
Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we sing together.